This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. Steve Carter here, and in association with my good friends at Preaching Today, Food for the Hungry, and Hope International University, I bring you a podcast to help you get better at the craft of preaching, but always hoping and ensuring that your character leads the way. Today, I'm excited because I get to interview a dear, dear friend, uh, Joel Mutamale. He's a force for good. But before we dive into this interview, I know Easter's coming. Good Friday, Holy Week is coming. And if you're like me, um, you just need some help with your Easter message. I've been going to preachingtoday.com uh, and um, there's a great, great Easter message by Ken Shigematsu. And it's just, it's good for me to just every once in a while just read different sermons just to see what people do with the resurrection, um, how they how they preach it in a in a unique and and beautiful and and fresh way. And um, there's articles about the skeptical nature of the disciples and man, what the resurrection must have felt like. And again, it just it's good. I, I I'm not, I'm not saying to to take their thing and copy it. No, no, no. We don't we don't do that. But to read and kind of see, oh, that's what they did with that text. That that's, that is really, really beautiful. So with all that, my friends, go to preachingtoday.com. You can even sign up for a membership. They got this great, great deal with Crafting Character. You can go to orderptnow.com slash cc30, and you will save 30% on that monthly rate. But without further ado, let me introduce you to the one, the only, Joel Mutamale. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining me on the Crafting Character Podcast. This um, has been one of those interviews that I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, we were in a uh, kind of two-day experience together a number of years ago, and you were helping me um, with some thoughts and theology around the thing beneath the thing. And I just remember going, man, I would love to spend like a month studying the scriptures with this guy. Uh, you, you had this, you had this like ability to, to have a, a very high view of academia, but even a higher view of how do I take that and make it profoundly accessible. And I just, I, I, I don't know. I just felt myself going, dude, I got to know this guy. And then I started following you on Instagram and I would watch how you would like bring people in to study the scriptures and the ways that you would like do videos on, on difficult topics that a lot of times people might just kind of push the side and not want to do it. You just leaned in. And for, for all of us who preach, we know finding good content, mining it into a message can be really, really hard. And so um, I'm super excited for you to learn from uh, my friend, Joel. And so Joel, just maybe just give us a little background, who you are, what you do, and then we'll dive, we'll dive into this, this little episode. 
Yeah, man. Well, so first of all, I just need to let you know, after that compel training, working on your book um, and your ideas, I just want you to know that that concept of the thing beneath the thing, um, the thing underneath the thing, like I, I probably have 25 different ways of saying that same thing, but it comes out all the time. And so I think um, that has just been a game changer personally for me. It's a, It's been a philosophical question. I've been asking myself about my motivations and my heart, even in the relationship to, to theology. So I want to thank you for um, for your just generosity and letting me uh, be a voice in that process. It was super fun. And we got to nerd out about some basketball and MJ <laughs> stuff. And that's, yes. that's always exciting for me. Um, so I work for a women's ministry. So that's one of the reasons why it's exciting for me. I'll typically try to bring in like basketball analogies and, and the gals will be like, Joel, no, I don't no. get it. No, we, and so, um, but I work for a gal named Lisa Turkers and um, Proverbs 31 ministries. I bring oversight to theological formation and, uh, and research and development. And so it's just a lot of fun. I got my start early in ministry career as a worship leader. Um, but I actually really, the thing that I loved about were the songs, the lyrics, like, what are we singing? Why are we singing them? How are they forming us as a type of people? What, what, what are they saying about not just what we believe, but who we believe and how that plays out into our lives? And so along the way, I realized like really what I'm talking about is theology. <laughs> like these songs are lived theology. And so it sent me on a journey of going to Bible college. I'm, um, Stephen, I think I mentioned it before. I'm a theological mutt. And so I have been all over the place, undergraduate degree in biblical studies at a kind of flagship Assemblies of God Pentecostal spot in California. I did an MDiv at Knox Theological Seminary, which is a Presbyterian seminary, a PhD at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary with a multidiscipline of biblical theology emphasis. So I looked at Paul's household themes in Ephesians, and I basically argued in my dissertation that um, Paul, yes, he's got a Greco-Roman background, Temple of Artemis, all that stuff is there, but actually he's a really good Jewish boy, you know, and and he's deeply rooted in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. And I think there's more going on when he's talking about the people who were separated, the foreigners and strangers, and how they come together to form the oikos tautheo, the household of God, and how this household of God actually grows into to a temple that's a the Greek there is actually really important. It's a it's an ongoing temple that that is building and growing and uh and it's incomplete, which is the sense of the local church today. Like, you know, like every baptism is another building block that is a person in this amazing temple. I'm like, where did he get this theology from? I'm like I think it's actually all the way back from Genesis 10, 11, and 12, um, the table of nations, the tower of Babel and the Abrahamic covenant. And so anyways, we could nerd out about that, but that was kind of my, um, my academic journey. And along the way, one of the things I realized is I was reading a lot of really brilliant, incredible scholars that sadly the everyday average Bible reader is just not going to have access to. Some of these books are way too expensive, which is a whole other issue in publishing, you know, um, which that is a problem. But then also it's just like, how do we maintain the substance of, of this rich, deep theology, but make it accessible for the everyday lover of Jesus. And, and along the way, my, uh, one of my doctoral advisors, Dr. Michael Heiser, who's an Old Testament scholar, he's, he says he refers to himself as a synthesizer. And I just really grappled, like I really grabbed onto that idea of like, I think what I'm, what I want to do is just synthesize these incredibly important biblical doctrinal theological ideas. Um, and connect dots for people. 
to help them see how this isn't something that should just lift 30,000 feet in the air, but Scott McKnight refers to it as it's a lived theology. So one of the things I, I'm often telling my friends and, and fellow ministry uh, co-workers is like a theology that is unlivable is so unhelpful, you know? Ooh. And so how do you and I live an embodied life. And this is the incarnation. This is Jesus in the incarnation. He he gave us a vision of a lived theology that is truly substantial. Like it is rich, you know, it's drawing on the Old Testament scriptures, but it's like, he's at the well with this woman in John four and he's drinking water, you know? And he's like telling her her, her whole story and changing her life as she knows it. And so it's like, I think that's one of the uh, beautiful pictures of like a, deeply theological debate in John chapter four with this woman in Samaria, uh, a Samaritan woman. But at the same time, it's deeply practical because she, her life changes forever, you know? So it's a lived theology. So anyways, that's kind of my background. Look at that guys. We are like four minutes in and we have gone to just kind of Paul. We have talked a little bit of basketball. We're just talked about a little backstory of the, where he's been, but this is like when the first time I met him, it was like drinking from a fire hydrant of just like we're we're in Greco-Roman, we're in Jewish culture, we're in this verse, we're in this Hebrew passage, we're all over. And you're like, I could listen to this guy for for hours. I, I I'm curious, like, because part of part of the trick, you know, as as many of us who study and we go to our commentaries. And we, we, we unpack, you know, Luke six and we're, we're, we're seeing Jesus, you know, engaging around, uh, conversations of the Sabbath and these Pharisees have been following him. And he tells, you know, uh, these, 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 these Pharisees, you know, brings them back to David, bring like, you, you can read a lot of this stuff. And yet I feel like when you dive into this stuff, I feel like you're looking for some things that some of us weren't always taught in Bible college <laughs> and taught in seminary. Like the way that your mind works to, I feel like collect dots and connect dots and then communicate those dots like yeah. is, is different. And that's, that's been one of the things that I've just, I've just really, really appreciated about you. Um, maybe, maybe bring us in, um, to hey, first off, if you're like approaching a text, um, how do you, how do you do it? How how, yeah. how does that how does that how does that play out for you? Well, one of the things I think I want to start with um, you and I know I, you know it's like if you were for having coffee, you'd be like Joel's an Indian dude. So I don't know if people are going to see this or not. It's on a podcast, but like I'm Indian. My grandparents are missionaries in India. I'm a child of immigrant parents. Um, so there's actually a um, a way that I have realized that my environment, the way that I've been wired, the, like what I've experienced, like that whole collecting, connecting and communicating dots kind of deal. Like, honestly, bro, like I've been trying to figure that out for my myself, <laughs> for my identity. Like how does an, a child of an immigrant live in a world, like one of my favorite stories, it's not even a favorite, it's actually traumatic. It was in therapy. I had to like navigate through this, but um, we had Indian food all the time at home, you know? And I used to get terrified that my clothes were going to smell like Indian food. So mm. I used to like put all my clothes in my closet. I used to light candles in my closet. It's a miracle that our house didn't burn down, you know? And because <laughs> I was terrified that like, and so 
in the four walls of our house, I lived in India. Basically, my dad only spoke Telugu to us. Like it was very much an Indian household. But then I would leave. And I actually lived in Naperville at the time uh, in Illinois. And so like I would go and it was like totally different culturally. And for me, it was like, how do I fit? Who am I? Like, like, are these things celebrated? Should they be rejected, neglected? Like, like what? And I think honestly, what happened for me with the Bible is like, those are some of the questions that I'm asking of the text, you know, like, like, why is this here? Like, and then if we look at scripture from Genesis through Revelation, not as disconnected, cherry picked verses that apply to us. And we do this really quick, right? Like, we're like, oh, cool. There's a little bit of historical stuff. Great. Now, how can I apply it? You know, Uh, in me, just Joel, personally, I'm spending 80% of my time in the historical, social, and cultural context of the text and in intertextual connections. So what I mean by that is you get to, um, what's, what's an example? You get to, uh, we'll use uh, Ephesians uh, chapter two and the temple of Artemis, you know, you get to that and you've got Paul talking about these people who are on the outside and how they come together. And there's this really interesting section in Ephesians two, where Paul basically looks at Jews and he talks about how they've come together because of the circumcision of the hand. And then he looks at Gentiles and he says that, but you're foreigners, like you're on the outside. And then he says that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down you know? And so why does Paul, like, this is the way I'm thinking, why would Paul use that phrase circumcision of the hands? Why is that so important for him to use that language in that text? And what is the relationship between that and the Gentiles? And so when I go into the study aspect of it, we actually find out that that Greek phrase is used of the Jews who actually were in sin when they constructed idols. So circumcision of the hands is actually a throwback, which every Jew at the time would have understood. They would have known like, ooh, I just got subtweeted here. You know, (laughs) like they're talking about a story of when we were unfaithful to Yahweh and we actually created idols. Now, where else does that take place? In the Exodus narrative with the golden calves, how, how, how do they build the golden calf? It's with the hand. They construct this thing with their hand. So what Paul is brilliantly doing in this moment is he's critiquing and, and, um, and calling the Israelites up and saying, by the way, you've got some sin. And simultaneously, he's letting the Gentiles know, hey, but you're being grafted into a prior existing family. So in other words, there's no room for superiority for Jew or Gentile in the new family of God. You both have situations that you have overcome that God has rescued you from, you know? But like, again, the way I'm thinking about this text is just thinking, okay, there is rich story. And the story is the story of the Israelites, the people of God. And and the way that Ephesians 2 becomes powerful for me is when I realize that Every moment of biblical history is interconnected in a way that brings this moment to light. And then now after I've done all of this work, right? Now I think about the application. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about, and and what if Paul was with us today with, with having his worldview on, what would he say about social classism today? Mm. What would he say about, um, about, creating systems and structures in churches that might benefit one group of people, but disenfranchise another one. Wow. Wow. You know, and how, what is his ministry methodology? 
he doesn't leave room for one group of people to create superiority over another. He actually rem- he reminds both people that y'all are sinners and saints saved by grace and faith through Jesus. Ooh, ooh. And so when that takes place, you look at each other and then you go, man, you've been saved from a lot. And they look at me and they go, man, you've been saved by a lot. And we look at each other and we're like, yo, we've been saved by, from a lot, you yeah. know? And it becomes this beautiful thing. So again, for me, like methodology wise, I'm a nerd. Like I want to get into the into the culture, into the social setting. Why are they using words the way that they are using them? And then really important for me is what is the thread of New Testament to Old Testament? And I think there's a couple of things that are happening. There's direct quotations to just let you know instantly, like, oh, they're quoting Moses or, or Paul's quoting Daniel, like whatever else. But sometimes there's echoes. So the mm. echo is, it's almost like this. Like today, uh, Stephen, if I were to say, um, where were you on 9-11? What would you say? Um, I was in, in college, actually, w- waking yeah. up, you know, okay. California. But Cal- okay, but all I said were two words. Yeah. And they're actually weren't even with their numbers, nine yeah. and 11. So what does nine and 11 mean to you? Well, my, my mom's family's all from New York. So they all lived in the city. And so um, what it means is uh, an attack on our country. I mean, okay. So like, like, I just want to point out that I said a phrase and that phrase created an echo in your mind. And that echo in your mind connected you to a social, historical, geographical moment. In fact, you actually went super deep and super personal because it's like my family lived in New York. Like, like, like you know, all that. The same thing is happening in the New Testament with Paul. So he good. has an echo. He, when he speaks, sometimes he's like, listen, like the Bible was written um, for us, but not to us. That's kind of like a like an important ideology here. So we have something like that we need to glean from it. But he's Paul speaking to a specific audience that is going to have echoes that are running rampant in their minds. So part of the task of the pastor and the preacher and the teacher is to ask this question: like, what would the church in Philippi be hearing? When Paul says in Philippians, I think it's two, that because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we ought to live our lives worthy of the gospel. Well, the church in Philippi was desperate for Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship was the thing that was going to get you success, honor, power, and privilege. But notice what Paul does subversively. He connects citizenship, something that they love and they long for, and he connects it to the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and by the way, the gospel, which is a political term as well, is something that is subversive in the, in the, in the culture, in the society. Well, where does Paul get all these ideas from? The ancient Israelites. It's a theocracy where people of Israel are the people of God with Yahweh who sits as king. And so this is, um, the idea, I think it's Exodus 16, nine, that, um, the people of God are called to be a royal priesthood mm. of, of, um, of the king, you know? And so all these things are taking place. In and again, I know I'm getting super nerdy into all of this, but that is when you ask me like, where, how am I connecting, collecting and communicating? I'm looking at those, it's really just questions. And then my research points me into, into those spaces. And I think biblical theology is like a snowball. You start at the very top 
And you've got like, this is why I think daily Bible reading is so important, right? Mm-hmm. Like disconnected from deep study, like just read your Bible at the, at the very end of the day, just read the Bible. Because when we're doing that, we're taking the Bible on its own terms, but it's like a snowball because all of a sudden, as you push it down the avalanche, it's just becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're starting to see the supernatural way that the scriptures are interconnected to each other. So I said, we had quotations, you have echoes, and then you have allusions. And allusions are super powerful because allusions are things that the biblical writer themselves may not even know that they're alluding to. But the divine author has has connected it in such a way that you and I, thousands of years later, can be like, whoa, this is the story of Joseph. Like, like, oh, this is this is an echo of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Like all of that is taking place. That's amazing. Okay. I want to go all the way back because you you said something that I'm like, this is this is interesting. Um so I had a, I had a friend, you mentioned Naperville you know, your, um, background, um, and parents, grandparents being from India. And, um, I had a buddy of mine who was in Chicago, he's Indian, and he talked about the coconut generation and he talked about the, what he called the 1.5 generation. And he would say like, Hey, at home, I spoke Indian. We ate curry. We spoke Indian, but I went to, I went to an American school and we didn't speak Indian. They didn't speak my right. like dialect from the state or the area where I w- my family was in India. We we only did that at home, and when I was with my grandparents, we did that. But then I'm at I'm at school, and I'm we're talking hip hop, we're talking you know basketball, we're talking English, like, and I lived in between uh, these yes. two worlds, and um, and it was like my parents though my parents went to and. Indian school only spoke Indian like, and, and now my kids, cause he's like, they're out of high school. We speak English at home and only yeah. really speak Indian when we're their grandparents. So right. he starts, he starts painting this picture of like, I'm in between two worlds. Yeah. And, and having to navigate through that. And just as you were talking about this, like I was realizing, man, that's what great exegesis is mm-hmm. because you've got to be able to live well between these two worlds. I mean, and, and some people just want to live, you know, when you use like Scott Duvall language, like in, in the city of like the historic city and just want to live there, but don't know how to actually speak to the streets. And then some people want to just look and forget about the ancient city and just speak to their streets. But that one point that's, I think I just had never put that connection, but as you're like mapping all this stuff out, I'm like, Dude, that's what I think even your story, your the 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 heritage story, the lineage, like the, the, your focus on words, like just that those that curiosity. Like I see you living between two worlds um with the text and with our world. And like whether through Proverbs 31, whether through Lisa, whether through helping people like me out and others, you just do this so well. And I just like it's yeah, it's one of my it's just powerful to see. I'm curious with like the the quotations and the allusions. Um, how do you discern when you're like, dude, I want this to say this? Yeah, like, this would be <laughs> like so I just like someone was just recently telling me they're like, oh, dude, you know that whole Bible verse of like, you know, the when when Jesus says, you know harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier yeah. for like a camel to go through the eye. Like someone was like, there's a gate and like camels would have to go through that. And I was like, 
I don't think that's true. But like there was this whole like a picture of a camel on the ground, like I, like that. But it sounds really, really cool. And contextually, yeah. you're like, eh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is true. But I just I find I find myself like, how do you discern those quotations or those allusions to go? And that would be really cool. That's just not what it's actually saying. Yeah. I mean, so this goes into like our hermeneutic method and model, you know? So the quotations part is, 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 is safe and easy because the way I define quotations is in the New Testament, when Paul's talking, he's going to say, um, uh, as the word said, or as it was written. So quotations have an introductory formula that, yeah, yeah. that lets you know, oh, he's sourcing this from somewhere else, right? And now for us in our hermeneutical method, it's then to make the decision, why? Why is he sourcing? And, and is it because, and so this is like a, a little bit technical, but is he pointing back to the Old Testament to say, and this was true? Mm-hmm. Or is he pointing back to the Old Testament to say, and this was partially true? But now in light of the Messiah, this is how we frame it so we can see the, tr- the, the truth of it. Or does he go back to the Old Testament and say, this is old covenants no longer needed. And here's why, because of the fulfillment of the Messiah. So that's like that hermeneutical her- her- uh, method. Allusions and echoes are much more difficult. And you're absolutely right. The allusions and echoes for me, uh, echoes, what I want to do is I don't want new theology, which is going to sound like crazy, right? I, I tell Lise and our team often, um, whenever somebody comes up to me and is like, man, I got this brand new idea. I don't think anybody's ever heard it. In the, and I like panic. So I'm like, this is where heresy starts from, right. you know, <laughs> like, like it sounds great, but is it great? You know, uh, I think that's a song too. Uh, let's, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, uh, but like, um, but what I want to do then is say, okay, where do we find evidence of this elsewhere either? So when we think about context, immediate context within that actual passage, chapter, extended context within that book, or then you get into New Testament, then you get, get into Old Testament. How do we build the bridge or build the interconnections between that thought and that idea with it being validated elsewhere? So there's this first kind of bucket that we're looking at, and that is just the text itself. How are the biblical authors connecting with each other? How does um, Peter, and actually how does Paul throughout all of his letters, how does he actually um, restate the Sermon on the Mount? If you actually look at the theology of Paul throughout his letters, all he's doing is plagiarizing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in different ways. It's pretty, pretty powerful, right? So how is that happening? Now, the second way is, we have the great benefit, and I think that I came from a generation that really didn't value this the way that I wish we did. We have the the great benefit of being connected to a great tradition of church history, you know? So it's like, how did Augustine think about this? How did Aquinas think about this? How did the church fathers um, connect this? Now, we also, they didn't get it all right, you know? Like, like they're trying to make sense of uh, of this, but it gives us an inkling of like, if they had this idea before, how did that flesh out? How did it, it work itself out? And that starts to give me confidence that we're not talking about something new and novel that I've just cherry picked, but there's a substance because the biblical authors and, and the family of theology that we come from, they've had these thoughts before. Um, there's a 17th century astronomer, his name is Johannes Kepler. And someday, one day somebody asked him, like, what is theology? And I love this. He said, theology is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. So he's looking up at the stars and he's simply saying, listen, I don't need to create the stars. Stars are already there, right? I just need to be thinking about 
why are those stars there? How do they relate to each other? How does it form constellations? What would happen if, hypothetically, one of those stars was not there? What would be the impact? This is what we're doing. We're thinking God's thoughts after him. And then I think I had a friend, uh, I think it was Levi Lusko. I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but making the connection of the astronomer versus an astronaut, you know, the astronaut is actually going into space and actually like doing an excursion out there. And then that's part of the application for me is saying, once you've identified and said, hey, there's enough here with echoes and illusions where I can say they're either it's present elsewhere in the text or um, the church tradition, the creeds, like they've kind of identified this. Now it's my job as an astro- as an astronaut to move out of astronomy and move into the actual working this thing out. And that's like living on the street with people, you know, that are in your churches that you're um, teaching to, that you're preaching to and saying, now, why should this even matter to us? How does an ancient text still matter, still make a difference and still determine how you and I should live our lives today. Yeah, that's so, I love that idea of the astronomer and astronaut. That's, that's powerful. We'll talk about this too, because, you know, with, with Greek, I find that, you know, it's, it's much more like science in the sense of, you know, you could take a word and you're like, oh, it's a, you know, a second person, present active and perfect. And yeah. you get like a, a sense of the present active. It's a continuous action, you know, and like, so there's, there's ways to like, really, really, really get close to what that word actually meant because mm-hmm. of how they break a word down. Then you get to Hebrew and <laughs> Hebrew is like, well, you know, like there's like, it's like, it's a, it's art. It's, it's um, poetic. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's poetic, poetic. And, and so when I think about some of those echoes where it could lead to like a riddle or it could lead to, and yet all of, you know, when you talk about Paul and Ephesians, Two, it's so easy to make a connection to Artemis, but then you can totally forget. No, he's a good Jewish boy, and yes. he knew this text, and he knew the oral tradition of it, and he knew the the stories that had been passed down that had been passed down. And all of a sudden, you start to go, "Whoa!" Like everything that was in this dude's mind. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I get there and go, "How in in that that space do you find yourself like going? Is it a?" with a level of confidence and with a level of humility. How, how do you, like, is it, and I think about this as a communicator, you know, um, where like sometimes rabbis will be like, uh, could it be, you know, yeah. like maybe it's like the midrash, you know, like yeah. how do you, as you're finding those connections that you've collected and start to communicate it, communicate with confidence and with humility? Yeah, like, how, like that tonal uh, responsibility, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is, I think this is what you're saying is so, so vitally important. And this is why I think all all theology should be done through the lens of humility. You know, mm. like humble theology for me is a life a life idea that I want to live out. I usually, I joke, but it's not a joke. Um, if you ever, like every theologian should walk with with a limp. I think every pastor should, probably should be walking around with a limp. Uh, when when Jacob wrestles with God, it's really interesting at the end of the text that at some point Jacob realizes I'm wrestling with Yahweh. <laughs> and he's like, I'm holding on for dear life until you bless me, I am bouncing. You know, that's yes. kind of the idea. And God blesses him. But here's the crazy thing. If I'm Jacob, I'm like, 
like, yo, on your way out, could you just touch the hip one more time to put it back? Like Jacob's living in the ancient Near Eastern world where he's walking everywhere. Like they don't have scooters. They don't have like, you know, they're not going to do orthopedic surgery to take a displaced hip and put it back. Like, like this, this is detrimental. This could be deadly for the man. Right. And he doesn't do it. And then it says, I love the the way the text phrases it. It says that, and Jacob limped along for the rest of his life. But here's my strong belief, conviction, that limp was not a sign of God's displeasure in Jacob's life. It was going to be a witness and a mark of the victory of God and the kindness of God on Jacob's life for the rest for the rest of his days, right? So I think we should all walk with a limp and recognize that that limp reminds us of our great need for God, okay? So that's the basis. The second part is, as an academic, I was trained very early and very quickly to know my limits, like to know my limits. It's like basketball. There's some dudes out there, bro, that should not be shooting three pointers. <laughs> like, like I know Steph is, has revolutionized the game, but like, if you don't got it, you don't got it. Just, just pull up in a, in a nice jumper. Like, you know, the mid range game, I mean, Jordan crushed with the mid range game, you know? Um, but why do we all want to shoot threes? I'm telling my sons this all the time. I'm like, bro, take a step in. You do not need to be taking these, these outside shots yet. Um, so we need to know our limits. And so when it comes to this question of language, um, we've got to recognize that we rely on commentaries because these scholars have done a lot of work in these languages in order to try to make sense. Like, so it's like a basic hermeneutical principle. You come across an English text. There's like five different ways of saying that one verse in five different translations. A great indication that there's something in the original Greek or Hebrew that these translators and a translation committee could not agree upon. They go, there's a nuance here that there's not a one-for-one equivalent you know? And so we're going to do our very best to get to the, and then there's a translation method, methodology that governs the way they do it. So if you're in a more paraphrase um, kind of translation methodology, you have less room to be wooden and concrete. So you're going to make more interpretive decisions there. So let me give uh, an example. And then I'm going to just like, just say at some point, we've got to recognize our limits. We've got to go to trusted commentaries. We've got to see what the, this is why I think pastors and like, we need to invest in our resources so we can then say, oh, there are seven commentators of the seven, five of them all agree here. A few of them don't agree here. Now, my role and responsibility is to step in and go, am I convinced or unconvinced? Where do I, at some point in time, where do I lean? And then I think in humility from stage or when we're preaching, I say this all the time, like I'm going to, I'm going to demarcate between what I believe convictionally versus what I've, I've come to the conclusion of, uh, uh, on, you know, and I'll say like that phrase, I'll say, I've come to the conclusion based off of studying this text and others have seen it differently, but I've personally come to the conclusion and conviction that this is where, and then you go, go into the teaching. I think Sometimes we get worried that if we say that, it's going to give people the sense of like, oh no, does he know what he's talking about? But I actually think it gives our people the sense of like, oh, he's a real person or she's a real person. Like we can have, and then it's an invitation to process through that. But here's a good example. Deuteronomy 32, eight through nine. This verse actually should be read as the aftermath of the Babel event in Genesis 11. And this is what what the text says. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Some Bible versions say according to the number of the people of Israel. 
So which one is, is right? Is it sons of God or people of Israel? Well, the Hebrew is inconclusive. Some manuscripts said people of Israel, but they're later dated manuscripts. When we went to Qumran and we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls affirmed the sons of God reading. Now, here's what's really interesting. The Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. Uh, when that was done, that, that original translation is called the Septuagint. The Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. The very first and best commentary we have on the Hebrew Bible is the Septuagint. So what does the Septuagint say there? It says, and I'm paraphrasing out of memory, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the angels of God. It's, it uses the Greek word angelos, uh, angels or angelos there. Why is that so important? Because the way the Greek translation translates it affirms the Dead Sea Scroll reading. So now we have a weight of evidence. One is a supernatural reading. The other is an earthly reading. So how should we read this? Does God determine it by the, by the people of Israel or by the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, these supernatural beings? It's the supernatural beings. Yeah. This also then brings coherence to the rest of how we read scripture because we have to ask the question, how in the world do we get the gods of the nations? Are they real or are they not? You know? Well, no, they are real. They're fallen angels. They, they are territorial beings, you know? And so notice how, because in the Hebrew, we just were unsure, but now we've got other evidence that brings us to, and at some point, and there are other people out there that will be like, no, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it, or I'm unconvinced, and they're going to land there. I'm going to say, well, if I take all the weight of evidence, and I'm going based off of Old Testament scholars, I'm super convinced that this should be read as the sons of God. But I've recognized my limits. Like, I know Hebrew, I know Greek, I know a little bit of some other stuff. But when it comes down to this, I need to rely on Old Testament experts that open it up to me so that I can make an informed decision at the end of the day. And so unless you approach the text with humility and then say, I know what my limits are, you're going to put yourself in a really precarious position because then you allow pride to step in and then you present yourself as if you're the authority of all information. And we all know that ain't it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no. So that's so good. I mean, I just, I just had this happen uh, a few weeks ago. I was teaching on Luke five and um, the, the, the Pharisees are frustrated with Jesus because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Mm -hmm. And then, then the conversation moves to fasting and then Jesus tells these two parables. And, and one of the parables that he tells the second, second one is, you know, about wine and, um, old wine skins, new wine skins. Mm -hmm. And then he, 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 if you take like Joel and you take, you know, the new Testament, it's like, Oh, he's, he's saying he's doing a new thing, but the whole parable, he's basically saying new wines, no good compared to the old wine. He literally says the old wine is better, but there was like a bunch of commentaries that I was reading people that I love. They're really, really right. wise. And, and they were just saying like, see, this is proof of Jesus doing a new thing. And he's saying this, but I can't get away from that phrase, the old is better. And the way that Luke writes, it felt as if he was saying, oh, no, 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 no. Like there, Jesus is the fulfillment. That's exactly it's, right. You know, and, and so I just, I was like with the congregation, I just said, hey, other places of scripture, a new thing is happening. Pentecost, a new thing is happening. Like new creation, Paul will use this language. Like new, there's, yeah. there's beauty in the new. I just, and there's, there are brilliant minds who say this. I didn't use the exact phrasing yet you used, but I, I said, but I, I really believe for yes. me 
da, 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 da. Yeah. And a couple of people came up to me and they're like, Hey, that, thank you for that. Like, because one, it, it shows me that you're actually reading different yeah. commentaries, but two, that you showed us what was there and how you got, it was almost like you showed your work. So I just, yeah. I, I love the way that you said that about having to do that. But that sometimes is, you know, as we talk about evangelism, it teaches our people how to go evangelize. When we talk about how we study from the pulpit, yeah. it can help yeah. our people have more biblical literacy. And I just think you have this way when I'm following you on Instagram. I love the way that you make things just really human and honest to the convictions that you hold and have. Yeah. And I think like, you know, um, gosh, to that point, it's like, I want to say so many things because the Luke passage is so important, but it's like, when you read Luke, um, even the genealogy of Luke, right? Like the genealogy of Luke is wild, wild, wild. What is actually happening? Why does Luke, I was just studying this other day. Why does Luke use a relatively unknown son of David, Nathan? And like the whole list is filled with relatively unknown people. Yeah. Like what is going on now? The one, one theory, which I lean in this direction is that it's actually Mary's uh, genealogical line. Like that's probably where I land. But I also think that it, it, that, adds to, and it goes to what you were just described, that the story of Jesus, the Messiah, has to be framed in the story of the people of God. And the story of the people of God ought not to be framed, first and foremost, by the story of the Davidic king on the throne, because the first connection with the Davidic king on the throne is Bathsheba, probably not a great you know, connection. Rather, we ought to see the story of the origin of David, which is as a shepherd boy in the field. Yeah. So I actually think that when Luke is bringing up Nathan, He's actually doing a throwback to saying, just like the son that nobody ever knew, like really nobody knows about, Matthew chooses King Solomon, Luke chooses Nathan. Why? It's because I think it's supposed to draw us to a David who's in the sh- is in the fields that nobody knew about. They knew all his older brothers. They don't know about him. And that to me adds to what you're saying. So it's like, this is that snowball, right? We take a look at Luke and we, what is Luke actually getting? And I go, my goodness, now I'm more affirmed in that rendering of that passage of what you talked about with the wineskins. Cause it's like, and by the way, Luke's been telegraphing this stuff all throughout the gospel. This yeah. is just another one of those that we're sticking into that fire of saying, and here's evidence of it. And so um, I love that, dude. I love that. Well, and, and again, just staying on Luke, because I'm just studying it like crazy right now. I still just can't get over that 26% of the New Testament was written by one man about one man, and it's meaning Luke and Acts, yep. for one man, right. Theophilus. Yep. Just like, like, I mean, like you have this platform with you know, Proverbs 31 ministries is doing amazing work. You have a a platform on Instagram and I know that word's a weird word, but like you have this ability to get your content out there and with, and it's like, and it goes and it serves so many, like just, I just imagine this like one guy going, man, like I want to write so that you have certainty, yeah, a level of certainty. And I just like, um, I've just been thinking a lot about that in my, my message prep, I'm like, as I, as I'm researching, I'm like, man, how did I, like this week, my Theophilus is Trish Bell. Yeah. Ah, man, how does, how is she going to connect to this, this teach on Sabbath? Oh, this one uh, for John Thomas. Like, I just like, almost like one man about one man for one man, you know, like I just, there's just been something. And I, and again, you, the way that you extrapolate, but then make it so um, accessible 
do you find that you are a better writer than communicator? Do you think as an author first and like uh, as someone who had to write a dissertation, who's written yeah. blogs and books, like, are you someone who like, I think about it in pen to paper or are you someone who thinks about it in, uh, I have a Bible in my hand and I'm preaching and communicating because the mediums are different. How, do, yeah. how does it work for you? Yeah. Uh, honestly, it's like, I wish based off of my training and everything else, people would probably assume, oh, he's a pen to paper thinker. That is not the case. Not the case at all. I am first and foremost, like a deep reader. I want to read and research. And probably the best way is for you and I to do what we're doing right now, to sit here and think and to talk and to make the connections. And I am on a journey of trying to make my writing, um, feel more like this conversation. I have a bad tendency when I write to get academic and stuffy and like, you know, a part of this, the way that I was trained, but it's funny. Um, sometimes uh, the team, when I write stuff down and I'm, we're like working on articles and stuff like that, or sections of new book projects, um, I'll send it out to the team. And when we're reviewing and every now and then I'll get a phone call from Lisa or from Leah or Shay, whoever, and they'll go, Hey Joel, I just read this section. And they won't even read the section back to me. They'll go, they'll go, um, they'll say, you're talking about this. So what were you saying? And I'll be like, Oh, I was saying this. And they're literally typing exactly what I say on the, and they're perfect. That's exactly what we needed. And I go back, I'm like the whole section I, I wrote is gone and it's just replaced with literally me, you know, but I think part of that is recognizing the way that God has wired me, you know? Um, and, and so I had a question the other day, like, I think I've got ADD, like I've got all these issues in my life of that. I don't, it's a, it's a miracle that I finished a PhD. It, it truly, truly <laughs> is. That is a sign of, of God's kindness and a, and a, a literally a miracle. But part of it is like, I can read for 15 minutes, dude. I got 15 to 30 max. And after that, I will have read a hundred pages and not know anything that I had read, you know? And so now it's like, I have a timer on my phone where it's like, I got 15 to 20. And once I get done, I, you know, do my theology talk Tuesdays on Instagram. I, I like, I've decided I'm not going to try. I'm actually going to step into my strengths and, and fortify those instead of trying to like relearn things that like God has just not wired me to do, which feels like a weird thing to say as a leader. But then I go and I can bring people around me that are incredible in administration, that are incredible. And I want that. Like, and it reminds me. I can do the things that God has wired me to do and do it well. And I can trust other people in my life to do these other things. Now we all have to deal with emails. Like we'll have things that we wish we didn't have to do. We have to do, but I think largely unhelpful for me to try to work upstream on areas of weakness versus just say, this is how God has wired me. How do I turn uh, this into a true strength, which is then changing the environment. Like I have to just work in different environments. That's an important thing for me, you know? Um, and it makes me a better communicator um, and writer as well. So I think I'm, I'm first thinking out loud and then I'm putting pen to paper and then I'm reading it and I'm processing it with people and then I'm editing it and, and changing things up. Um, but I, th I think I'm probably first a communicator. Yeah, no, I, I could totally see that. And, and I hope you're, you're hearing this as a, as a listener and preacher, like here's a guy who's obviously gifted by God and brilliant. But even as we go back to like what we, this conversation was about, like we all have a limp. 
you know, yeah. and to, to know that you can only like read for 15 to 20 minutes and you got to have a little change of scenery. Like, I don't know. I don't know about if any of you who are listening to this, you're like, oh, that makes me feel better. You know, yeah. like in a sense, in a, and then it's like, okay, great. And then, but you found these ways to like maximize the way it makes sense to you. Um, I have a guy who will sit in, you know, the, the front row and every once in a while, like most, most times I teach usually at like the 28 minute mark, he'll 32 minute mark. He'll just say, make it plain doc, make it plain, you know? And I just, I just, I love it. I have that in my, in my brain because you know, like you and I, we can, we can nerd out on yes. table fellowship and random different Greco Roman Hebrew yeah. culture, rabbinic thoughts, mission, all that stuff. But and then it gets to a point is like, well, well, how to make it plain? And why does this matter? Like, why exactly. does so? Why does and I have I your your make it plain doc. I've got two of those. Leah, Leah uh, Shay, actually three. Shay, Leah, and Maddie. And I'll be like, I'll be go. Actually, this happened the other day. We're talking about the Luke thing, and I'm like, get so excited about this stuff, yeah. you know, like like this how I'm wired. And then at one point, uh, Leah was like, okay, Joel, that's really great. Uh, we just talked about that for about thirty minutes, but like, well. Like now what? Like, why does that matter? Yes. yes. And then I was like, oh, and here's why. And my brain doesn't naturally get me there. I get really excited about this other part. So it's really important that I have people in my life that go, um, you know, make it plain doc. Like yeah. that's just, that's beautiful. And I have that in the back of my brain as I'm reading and researching and writing or doing Instagram stuff. It's just like, um, yeah. So why would the everyday average, like I think about the mom who's sitting in the car car line waiting to pick up her kids and she's got seven minutes, you know, literally seven minutes. And she has trusted me as a voice in her life for seven minutes to give her something, you know, from the text or something deeper because she didn't get the chance to go to seminary or whatever it might be. And I'm like, all right, like what does the everyday average Bible student want to get from, from this moment? And how, how can I give her substance, like depth, but also application at the same time? Mm, that's so good. That's so good. Um, okay. One final question I'm curious about, and you know, this, the podcast crafting character, I want people to get better at the craft, you know, prep preaching, you know, all of the study and, and, but then there's this whole character piece and, you know, character for me is, you know, it's everything. It's, it's like, am I, am I, is my character leading the way or is my, my gifting leading the way is my, yep what the, what the, the, the spirit is doing within, is that leading the way or, um, the charisma that I can have when I'm on stage leading the way? Like, it's just, and, and part of what I love to learn from different people is just, Hey, what are you doing? And, you know, you and I share a heart for integrity and character and all of formation and stuff, but like for you as someone who's constantly researching and in it, I not how are you prioritizing your own character development and formation in the, in the way, in the life and the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ? How, how, how does, what does that look like for you, Joel? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to get very technical or very practical here. Um, I've got a group of friends that I've known since I was like eight years old, seven years old. And we grew up together in Chicago. They're all Indian. We all had some of the same experiences being like what your buddy said, the 1.5, you know, the coconut deal, like that's just so true. And we went to an Indian church. We went to a white church. We did all that together. You know, these dudes know me. They are not fascinated by me. They are not. They, the PhD is like, great job. Proud of you, bro. And they're like, how did you like, like you could barely read for 10 minutes. How'd you do that? You know, like, like they just know they're just 
They don't care about anything that I've done success-wise. They care about me as a man and as a friend. And we've been through a lot of stuff. And so one of the things that, uh, that, that I do from a character standpoint is I keep those guys really close. I keep them really close and they have access to me like nobody else in my life. They have access to my wife in the sense of like being able to like, just in a second, if they're like, I'm worried about what's going on with Joel. Like we haven't heard from, like they can call Brit at any point in time and talk and Brit can call them. Like she yeah. knows them very well. So there's yeah. that. So there's this sense of accountability from a, and like fun stuff. Like we play fantasy football together, you know, <laughs> and like we stay connected. And and so all of that on a pragmatic level, it, it keeps us together. So for me, it's like, it gets really scary when the circle that you have around you um, only knows you from the context of success or from the context of your authority or your platform or, or any of these types of things. And really, like I've come to the belief that it doesn't matter if you're a pastor of 5,000 or a pastor of 500. There's a seductivity to the pulpit, to teaching, to authority, that um, if we're not careful, our souls were not designed to, to carry that. It's actually called glory. And when we try to be absorbers of glory versus reflecting glory back out onto God, that is idolatry and it will destroy us, you know? And so for me, it's been, it's been very practical on that point. And the other person, just my wife, man, like my wife, um, she's unimpressed with me and impressed with me, you know? And the funny thing is the things that she's impressed with me about 99% of the world could care less, you know, like, and that's awesome. Like she, like, so I, it's just been very practical on that level of relational. Um, and I just, Eugene Peterson has this incredible statement in the beginning of his book as Kingfisher's catch fire. And he talks about how he longs for a life of congruence yeah. that what is inside would be true of what is outside. And that has really, really, captured me. Like I long for a life of congruence. And the interesting thing is your inside could be jacked up, right? Mm -hmm. Like it could actually legitimately be jacked up. The greatest danger is when the outside looks all clean and put together. Yeah. And so I want congruence. I want like, man, if I'm, I've had a friend recently that just passed away from a two and a half year battle of cancer, um, mm -hmm. uh, colon cancer that spread to his brain. And, you know, there are two days there where my insides were torn up. And I had to figure out how to allow the outside to be congruent with that as I was grieving and didn't know how to do that. So I had my guys, I had Brit, I had, you know, um, the greatest danger is for the inside to be torn up and me to present on the outside, like everything is totally fine because that will catch up to you over a period of time. So that that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out. Joel Mutamale, you are a legend, bro. I feel like I could just, we could, we, there's so much more we can talk about. There's just so much more. And I, I mean, I'm just saying you are a gift. Um, where can people follow you because they need to follow you. They need to, to know what's coming. Um, just because again, you, you just got like a, for anyone listening and you don't know Joel, you just got like a, like an appetizer. Like this is just like the first course. Um, because, the way that God just uses this guy and humility, humility, humility. I mean, this guy just has it, but um, a hunger for his word is hunger for people to get his word. I mean, just, um, yeah, where can, where can people follow you? Cause I, I would really want them just to track with the good work that you're doing. 
Yeah, man. So the primary teaching space is, is honestly, it's Instagram. Um, so it's just my last name. It's at M-U-D-D-A-M-A-L-L-E. Um, and so on Tuesdays, I do this thing called Theology Talk Tuesday, which is super fun. Um, try to answer as many theology questions as I can um, in these little tiny square boxes, which is uh, super uh interesting. And then my website is the same thing. It's just mutamali.com. And I've got a little link on there for a newsletter um, called Bite Size Theology, where you'll get like a series of emails that kind of walks you through theology five minutes or less. And so it's kind of that idea of, I want to give you substance, but make it accessible. And that'll be probably a fun uh, entry point. And then um, I'm on the Proverbs 31 site. And so if you go there and search my name, you'll see all the different things um, that I'm working on and teaching through. Oh, hey, dude, thank you so much. And thanks for your heart for the text, your heart for, for pastors, your heart just for people. And um, man, many blessings to you, bro. It's, uh, I just feel like this next season, there's just gonna just be ample opportunity for, I don't know, like I feel like you've been behind um, and really helping so many, myself and so many other great people just like, um, but it's it's gonna be fun. I feel like in these these seasons to come, as, as more and more people get to taste and see how God has wired you and gifted you. And um, I, I know it's gonna bless many because it's already blessed me, but it's gonna bless so, so many. So uh, follow Joel, check him out. And thanks so much for having, being on the Crafting Character Podcast. Thanks, brother. Thanks so much for tuning into the Crafting Character Podcast. And I hope, I hope this one just spoke to you. I just love how deep and how rich and how accessible. I mean, really, Joel just embodies a theology for everyone. And I just love it. Uh, check him out. Check out preachingtoday.com. Check out Food for the Hungry, fh.org, what they're doing in the world. And if I can ever serve you, never hesitate to reach out. My email is steve at steveryancarter.com. Much love, everyone. We'll see you after Easter. Grace and peace.